Welcome to the Market Leaders Podcast, where you'll find valuable marketing and business development insights from legal innovators. The podcast series is brought to you by Ackert, the company behind Practice Boomers, Practice Viewer, and Practice Pipeline, the leading business development pipeline management tool for law firms. Hello, and welcome back to the Market Leaders Podcast. I'm David Ackert, and today, My guest is Dr. Larry Richard, who is a recognized leading expert on the psychology of lawyer behavior. He's advised dozens of AMLAW 200 law firms on leadership, management, and related issues such as teams, change management, talent selection, assessment, and other aspects of strategic talent management. He was a litigator. He practiced for 10 years before transitioning into what he does now. He has a PhD in psychology with a focus on the legal profession. Larry, great to have you with us today. Thank you, David. Delighted to be here. Tell us a little bit about this transition between being a litigator and being an expert in the psychology of lawyers. That's uh, not a turn that most lawyers take. That is certainly true. I started out in life really as a lawyer at about age two. And that sounds like a joke, but I, I really mean it in a serious way in this sense. My Most of my family, my grandfather, my father, uncles, aunts, cousins, all lawyers, lawyers and judges. So the whole family was kind of a, you know, a miniature legal profession unto itself. And that's all I ever really knew. The only job I ever thought about when I was young was becoming a lawyer. Everybody that I looked at in my family when I looked around really seemed to enjoy the practice of law. So I never gave it a second thought. I just thought this is for me. I should have had a clue on the first day of law school when I really didn't like that experience. And then three years in, it never changed. And I I never really enjoyed the experience. I kept telling myself, when I get into practice, that's when it'll be enjoyable. And I hopscotched from job to job to job every year and a half or two years. And um, after about 10 years of that, I finally woke up one day and said, I don't think this is working for me. I don't think it's right for me. And other people might have come to that conclusion sooner. I think because of all of the context, it just made it hard for me to recognize that simple truth. And finally, when I did, I said, I've got to do something different. I didn't want to waste all of the experience that I had about you know, lawyers and the profession. And so when I did some soul searching, I realized the thing that I love the most always was and has been psychology, understanding people, studying people, being with people, figuring out how to help people. That's always been the most natural, attractive theme to me. And I thought, how can I use that in a way that marries up with my unique knowledge of lawyers. And so I came on this idea of, um, you know, getting a degree in psychology and studying lawyers. And that's exactly what I did. I, in fact, my dissertation was a study of 3000 lawyers across the U.S. and their Myers-Briggs preferences. And my purpose wasn't to study the personalities of lawyers. That was kind of incidental. I was asking the question, does personality explain why lawyers are so unhappy. When I did my dissertation in the late 80s, there was enormous job dissatisfaction in the profession. And I was wondering if it was driven by wrong personality, wrong fit, that type of thing. turns out that Mm -hmm. personality only explained a very, very small proportion. 
the main reason lawyers were unhappy is that they, they were just working too hard. But when I looked at the data, I was stunned by something I hadn't expected, which is that the distribution of Myers-Briggs preferences, the types, was very atypical. It wasn't at all what you would expect from the general population. All of the most common personality traits for the public, with one exception, were very rare among lawyers. And the things that were rare in the public were the dominant traits for lawyers. And I looked at that and I said, wow, this is really odd and very interesting. And let's fast forward 20 plus years. I now have gathered data from about 25,000 plus lawyers with over, I don't know, 40 to 50,000 sets of personality data. And it's very clear at this point that the people who go into law are very similar to each other in certain ways and very different from the public. And the way that they're different makes them capable of practicing law at a very high level. But those same personality traits that make them good at practicing law make it much, much harder for them to be good at things that we didn't used to have to worry about, but now everybody's expected to do. Leadership, collegiality, innovation, teams, coaching and mentoring other people, rainmaking, all of those things are impeded by the things that make us good lawyers. Right. So you're referring to, of course, the seminal research that most people reference as the, the calipers profile, the sort of four or five key characteristics that you identified as being common among most lawyers that kind of make up that archetype of lawyer, if you will. So for those who are less familiar with that study, can you just give us a very quick high level of what those characteristics are and how lawyers in particular score compared to the average person? Sure. So when I finished Myers-Briggs research, I realized that Myers-Briggs, while it's a fun tool and interesting and very widely known, from a scientific standpoint, it doesn't have the chops compared to what's called a continuous scale type of test, something that measures on a percentile basis instead of categorically. In Myers-Briggs, you're either a, an extrovert or an introvert and that sort of thing. And while that's you know helpful for understanding people who are not like you, a test that has a scale zero to 100 can pinpoint, let's say, cautiousness. You might be a, a 90 on cautiousness and I might be a 10. And that's very useful for us to understand about each other so we can adapt to each other's differences. So I looked at this test called the Caliper Profile, which is one of the best, most scientifically valid and reliable at measuring things on a continuous scale. And Again, I found something that shocked me that of the 18 caliper traits, all of them are expected to fall around 50% average for each trait when you measure a large group. If you took all of caliper's tests to date, that's 50 years worth plus, 54 years worth, they've measured over 6 million college educated people. And if you look at that whole database of 6 million people, the highs and the lows cancel out, and every trait averages around 50%. So it takes a lot. If you, if you measure a subgroup like bartenders or bus drivers or teachers or accountants, 
every one of their 18 traits is going to average close to 50, but it won't be exactly 50. There's going to be some slippage because certain of those traits are favored or disfavored in that job. But right. it, would be un, it would be unheard of. It would be atypical for an average score, even one of the 18 traits, to average below 40 or above 60. Those are the guardrails, the standard deviation. So most of the traits are going to be in the mid-40s, mid-50s. Lawyers have six of their 18 traits below 40 or above 60. And that's just astonishing. And it's very consistent over time. They have extreme traits that are right. consistent throughout the profession. Exactly. So what are some of those traits? So the first one is autonomy. Caliper calls it external structure, but I flip that around on its head because that's a mouthful. I just call it autonomy. Lawyers want, they don't want anyone telling them what to do. They like to right. feel in control. In control is nice. It's a good feeling to have. But when you're in a world of change that you can't control, people with high needs for control feel more stressed out than the average person does. So we're kind of sitting ducks for change. They, they are in uh, organizations that uh, label them as partners. And so by definition, you're supposed to do things uh, not as a silo or not as an individual, but be able to share some of that control and, and be able to shape the organization with uh, input from others. Of course, that means relinquishing some of that control. That's right. And in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. But we all joke about managing lawyers is like herding cats because it's a group of people who are very individualistic and don't really like being controlled. And so, you know, even the largest firms are always having to wrangle their partners and it's hard to get them to march in a straight line on anything. I joke about it like it's it's really like herding tigers because it's much more dangerous an exercise than herding cats. <laughs> yes, good. So one managing partner once said to me, he said, uh, he was from the South, he said, Larry, I've got a better metaphor for you. It's uh, like trying to push a wheelbarrow full of frogs. And if you can just picture metaphorically the frogs jumping out of the barrel, yes. uh, that's a very good metaphor. So right. the second trait, David, is abstract reasoning. Lawyers are drawn like moths to a light to anything that gives them a chance to use their brain. They love mm -hmm. intellectual challenge, problem solving, analysis. One client called it ratiocination, figuring things out. Of course they did. <laughs> so this is something that many studies have shown that the intellectual challenge aspect of practicing law is what draws most people to the profession and keeps them anchored in the profession. Now, that's yeah. all a good thing. But of course, anything that's good done to excess can be bad. So too much of the anal analytical thinking and you get this, the famous analysis paralysis. Number three is urgency or impatience. The people who go into law are about 20, 21% more impatient than the public. Hmm. That's actually serving us in most cases because our clients want responsiveness. Every time I work with a law department, I say to them, you know, my law firm clients say that you guys want them to be responsive. Is that accurate? And every head in the room is, yep, yep, that's true. We want responsiveness. Get back to us yes. quickly, solve our problems swiftly. So that's a true thing. It's a plus that the people drawn to the legal profession 
have a, a personality disposition to be urgent and to get things done. So that helps. Of course, it doesn't help in the other roles we play. Being in a leadership role, you can't be urgent. It's kind of um, a both end. There's a need for urgency and leadership to you know, get initiatives moving forward, but there's also a need for patience because you need to get buy-in from people. Well, sure, and there's and, a process that's, that's required in order for any uh, organizational change or any meaningful project to find its way to success. The profession also lends itself to a very urgency-based, or perhaps we can call it a, a short-term-oriented way of going through the day. I mean, you're billing in six-minute increments. Exactly. So the time-driven nature of the profession certainly adds to the stress that we bring to it with this personality trait. So the next trait is sociability which has to do with how, how comfortable we are initiating intimate connections, authentic relationships. High-scoring people are very open and disclosing. Low-scoring people are private and, in fact, don't even like talking about relationships. They want to keep relationships as far away as possible and just talk about the weather and politics and art and anything but something personal. Right. And that's a problem because research over the last 20 years has shown that relationships, especially ongoing authentic relationships, are some sort of an elixir. They're, they're the secret to life. They're the things that keep us healthy and happy and satisfied in our work, in our personal lives, in our relationships. So social connection or relationships are really vital. And yet there's developed this cultural norm in the legal profession that relationships are, quote, touchy-feely and, and should be avoided at all costs. And that's really a disservice. Lawyers are re remarkably low on this trait, 12% average compared to 50 for the public. And lawyers are against something that they're actually in favor of, paradoxically. Right. So when you, when you look at firms that break up and they interview the partners, what do you miss about the firm? The number one thing that they always mention is the collegiality of my colleagues. Right. When you ask people, where do you get most of your business? And they analyze matter by matter by matter. Oh, well, I had this relationship. And so relationships are central if you, if you watch them like a fly on a wall. But if you ask lawyers what's important, oh, no, relationships don't matter. They're not important. So it's, a, it's an interesting disconnect, David, in between what they say and what you see if you actually watch their behavior. Well, and it means that uh, if they are... Uh, looking to advance in that area, they're starting off at, and again, when we say they, we're probably talking about the majority. I'm sure there are outliers. I've certainly met lawyers who are especially sociable. They also tend to be those that have bigger books of business and tend to be, you know, better networked and better rainmakers. But if the average lawyer starts at this disadvantage, then, you know, they have a much steeper incline ahead of them when it comes to building relationships that ultimately serve them both internally and external to the firm. Absolutely true. Right on the money. So trait number five is resilience. And it's the most interesting trait to me because resilience has to do with two things. Number one, how thick or thin skinned you are when you're criticized or rejected. And number two, if you do get rejected or criticized and, and suffer, how quickly do you bounce back? And the caliber is mainly measuring the first quality, how thick-skinned we are. Well, it turns out that lawyers are 
consistently thin skin. I've got 25 straight years of data showing that we are thin skin. We average 30% instead of 50 for the last 25 years. But it's more important that we look at the skewed distribution. It's not a classic bell curve. 90% of the lawyers we test year in and year out score below the 50th percentile. In other words, almost all lawyers are in the bottom half of this scale. In fact, my standing joke when I speak to large groups of lawyers is if you feel bad hearing this statistic, it illustrates the very trait we're talking about. That's right. So, and what is a high resilience person? When, when they hear bad news, it just rolls off their back. I had a, a partner that um, I've spoken about in other interviews in an IP firm, and he had a 95, very unusual for a lawyer, 95% resilience score, very high. And I asked him what it's like when he is criticized. And he thinks for a second, he shrugs his shoulders. He says, I don't know, I guess it means somebody else has a problem. Well, I'll never forget that because I wouldn't think of that answer in a million years. Most Mm -hmm. lawyers wouldn't. He doesn't take it personally. So that's a good example of high resilience. Most of us are the opposite. And when you're thin skinned, you start explaining yourself. You feel wounded. You feel hurt. You get defensive. You start denying and deflecting. You may even counterattack. Yeah. Anything to make the criticism go away. It sounds like uh, you're one of the things you're saying here is that law firms are mostly composed of individuals with thin skin and sharp elbows. No wonder the culture can be such a often awkward place to navigate. That's right. And and wait, we're not done yet because there there are two more. There are actually six plus a seventh I'm working on uh, traits that figure into the description you just gave. So Uh resilience is critical for a lot of things. When you're in a world of change, when there's a lot of competition, when you don't get things that you want, resilience is a big factor. And one of the other things that I've been musing on recently is everybody talks about how common it is for lawyers to refer to those who are not formally trained in the law as non-lawyers. Oh, yes. Now, now you and I know you never go to the doctor and and hear somebody say, the non-doctor will see you now. Right. You never, you never take your taxes to your accountant and they say the non-accountant will do your books. Right. We're the only profession that I know of that instead of using a professional title for paraprofessionals, calls them non-us. Right. And that, that to me is a good illustration of low resilience. We build ourselves up by putting other people down. So what's the, the next trait? Remember I said resilience has been rock steady at 30% for 25 straight years. How's that even possible? Mm-hmm. And why? why? Why are we so low in resilience? Well, it turns out that there's relatively recent research that shows that resilience is responsive to several things. And the two main things that it's responsive to are social connection. We've already seen that lawyers average 12% on sociability. So we're not certainly not getting the benefit of social connection to build our resilience. And if anything, our our isolation is lowering our resilience. The Harvard Business Review over this past summer had an article about loneliness. And they measured dozens of different occupations. And guess who was at the bottom in terms of the loneliest occupation? The legal profession. Sure. So that that is 
almost a badge of dishonor. The, the fact that we're so lonely and isolated is hurting us in the ways I mentioned before, but it also keeps our resilience low. So these traits are connected. The other trait is optimistic thinking when you get into a problem. If you hit one of life's bumps, optimist, I don't mean the cockeyed rose-colored glasses optimist, everything's going to be wonderful despite evidence to the contrary. I'm talking about somebody who says, look, I don't have all the data about this boo-boo, but I have a choice in how I explain it. I can catastrophize and say this is the end of the world for me, or I can come up with a more modest explanation showing how, yeah, this is bad, but I've, met, I've mastered things like this in the past, and at least a lot of other stuff is working in my life. That's more of a, a realistic optimism. Turns out the people that have that more realistic explanation in their head when they run into an adversity are much more resilient than people who have a more pessimistic explanation. And this is mm -hmm. something totally controllable. We can control that dialogue in our head. And if we do, we get a huge payoff. It's not an inconsequential thing. So mm -hmm. what's a trait that, that it's not exactly the same thing as optimism, pessimism, but it sure is a first cousin that travels in the same direction. And that is skepticism versus trust. Mm -hmm. The public average is 50. The average skepticism score for lawyers is 90%. Yep. This is the disposition of choice for practicing law. It's what gives us the ability to protect our clients by always looking for what could go wrong and what is wrong and what are the exceptions and what are the problems and what are the motives I should be wary of? What's your hidden agenda and what do you really want? That type of thing. Yeah. So those qualities of the skeptic are really essential, not just nice, but essential to the high quality practice of law. But they lower resilience to a fairly well, they interfere with relationships, they undermine leadership, they completely eviscerate the ability to innovate, they yes. foster low collegiality and conflict. Skepticism alone does this you know, not to mention adding the low resilience and some of the other traits, low sociability, they all contribute. But skepticism carries a lot of the load on its shoulders. So yeah. It's a very important trait. And because it's essential to the practice of law, it makes for some real, real paradoxes in this age we live in now, where we're trying to cope with the unknown. We're trying to compete on a bigger playing field. We're trying to retain millennials who have more of a disposition to leave early. There are lots more challenges today than we ever had before that impose on lawyers the obligation to wear many more hats beside lawyer, like leader, mentor, supervisor, rainmaker, colleague, coach. All of those new roles do best when you have low skepticism, high trust, high resilience, and high sociability. So as you we're, say... Our, our current landscape is, is putting a lot of new hats on lawyers' heads, and it sounds like based on your research of the lawyer personality profile, most of those hats don't fit very well. That's right. There's one more hat, David, that I want to talk about, and that is something that technically didn't qualify as an outlier trait because it wasn't below 40 or above 60, but at 41% empathy or cognitive empathy, as it's called, is very low for lawyers. And I would like to do my main study again, because I expect that we'll find it's actually lower than 41% nowadays. 
There's one study done about four years ago that showed that millennials have 40% lower empathy than the previous generation. And since millennials now make up almost 100% of the associate class, it's likely that the empathy of the legal profession as a whole has de declined since I originally gathered my data. And so empathy is likely to be dropping. And what that means is when you can't take the perspective of the other or when you don't, you can, but most people who can just don't. But when you don't take the perspective of the other, it's very easy to assume, you know, facts, not in evidence, as we say in litigation, to assume things that are simply not true or at least not tested. Like we assume people have bad motives when in fact they have often not got bad motives. We assume that uh, the comp committee's out to get us when in fact they weren't even thinking about us. We assume right. all kinds of things that turn out not to be true. And those, that, that failure to check with your cognitive empathy capacity to put yourself in the shoes of the other person before you jump to a conclusion is a skill that's highly in demand. And when it's used effectively, it can make somebody highly emotionally intelligent and very adept at all the things we have to do that involve kind of the business of law, all the, all the roles that I mentioned beside practicing law. Yeah. If you're not good at cognitive empathy, I think it hurts both those business of law roles and the practice of law. So it's the seventh hat. Well, your most recent comment here leads me to another question, which is that I know you have been doing uh, ongoing research over the last several decades, all the way up to today. But I imagine, I mean, just anecdotally, I'll tell you what I'm seeing is that the millennial generation, even to some extent, Generation X, is moving the needle somewhat by necessity. They are more entrepreneurial. They are at least willing to accept that business development is not just this nuisance or this nice to have. It's, it's not necessarily something that they relish, but there is more openness to it. Uh, now than there was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And there seems to be as well the acknowledgement that innovation is required. Again, we're not necessarily seeing it to any impressive degree at most firms, but the word is no longer, you know, on the list of things you're not allowed to say at a law firm. In fact, most law firms at least give some lip service to doing something innovative. So it seems to me that an evolution is occurring but I can't tell whether that's largely rhetoric as driven by our new economic landscape and our new competitive arena. When I say new, I mean relatively new, obviously, or if we really are seeing an evolution in that personality type. You'd be the one to tell us. So what are you seeing? Well, there certainly is a need for innovation. And I think a lot of firms have embraced that need. One of the reasons I think that's happening is that psychologically, change makes us feel out of control, as I mentioned earlier. When you innovate, you're basically taking back control about the future. You're saying, we don't know what's going to happen, but if we take charge and we say, let's do something different from what we've been doing up until now, it gives you the psychological feeling of we're now back in control. We may not be able to predict the future any better, but we feel like we can because we're making choices about that future in a different way. And so that, right. that's psychologically soothing to people. 
especially high control people, people who need a lot of control, like lawyers. So innovation is on the radar screen, and I think it's here to stay. The question is, how do we get good at it? And that's where the challenge is, and that's where I think that there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of room for improvement. And the key is agility or adaptability, the willingness to take off your skepticism hat and put on the trusting hat, to take off the detached analytical hat and put on the warm, connected hat, because those are qualities that the research shows foster innovation. And so it's a very different mindset. And if you are comfortable sticking with just one mindset, the lawyer mindset, you'll be good at practicing law and, and innovation is going to remain a challenge. But it's very doable. It's eminently doable if we can just make that that shift to being able to adapt. And, you know, human beings are very adaptable. We should be able to do that. Yeah. Now, you had spoken earlier about how millennials as a generation have lower empathy scores than the generations that have preceded them. I'm wondering if you've seen any other deviations by gender or by generation. You know, do women score differently from men on this profile? Do boomers score differently from Xers versus, versus millennials? What, what, what are you seeing there categorically? So that is a very interesting question, David, because let me take them one at a time. Let's take gender. There are definitely personality differences across the genders. Forget law for a moment. If you look at general personality data across the general public, certain traits, traditionally women score higher or men score higher. So what do women score higher on? Women score higher on empathy than men. Women score higher on social connection or sociability than men. Men score higher on urgency. They score higher on stress, you know, things that have to do with tolerating stress better. So those are the, the normal differences you see. And there, truth be told, there aren't that many gender differences. Most personality traits, there are no gender differences to speak of. But I mentioned there are a couple of them. When you look at the data for lawyers, most of those gender differences from the public evaporate. And they evaporate, every one of them evaporates in the direction of males. In other words, women who enter the law look more like men. It's almost unheard of to see men who enter the law shift to look like women. And what that means is the women who enter the law are more urgent than women in general, more less empathic, tougher, less sociable, more able to, to cope with stress, maybe more mm -hmm. driven. And I was always hopeful that when we reached a tipping point, when it got to be 50% women and 50% men, that they'd rub off on each other and we kind of find this middle ground. But it hasn't worked that way. It looks like the data are showing that the maleness of the profession is so dominant that either women who have that male quality are the ones who are attracted or that any women coming in morph into the male-like qualities when they get here. And it seems like, you know, there are exceptions, but they're the ones that have that unique individual gumption that allows them to transcend the pressures that exist. So it's, it's a very interesting thing how that disappears, that gender difference disappears. The best example I can give you is the Myers-Briggs. There's a, a famous scale on the Myers-Briggs thinker versus feeler. And in mm -hmm. the general population, about 
two-thirds of women are feelers, and about 60% of men are thinkers. So clearly, thinking is the dominant decision-making style for men, and feeling or value-based decision-making is the dominant strategy for women based on the Myers-Briggs data. In the legal profession, my data show that 77% of all lawyers are thinkers, men and women. Or another way to, to think about that is, if the general population, if women are 65% feelers, then most women who go into law are drawn from the 35% who are thinkers. Right. And, and so that gives you an idea about how this distortion is taking place, this, this you know, pattern of attracting masculinized women, if you will. I, I mean that in a purely statistical sense, not in any sort of social sense. The other thing is when you mentioned age cohorts. So are millennials any different from older generations of lawyers? Well, here's the interesting thing. There's data about millennials' values and attitudes. And originally, when they were first coming to our attention as a cohort, a lot of scholars said, well, the millennials are different, but they didn't have good data. They just had a suspicion. And a lot of critics said, oh, come on, you can't say they're different. You just forgot what it's like to be a 20-something. Right. And when, when they get to be our age, they'll be just like us. So, you know, and we were like them when we were that age. So don't say they're different from us because you just don't remember. So it's more of a question of faulty memory than it is genuine differences of, you know, this generation. The real way to test that would be if we had some sort of data that was gathered from our generation when we were in our 20s that could be compared with the current generation in their 20s. So it's apples to apples. But that's very hard to come by until a researcher named Gene Twenge found that data, found an old study that had been done serially every few years. And so data was available to compare 20, 30, 40 years worth of test takers to the current generation, and they could see that, yes, in fact, the current 20-year-olds are materially different from previous 20-year-old cohorts. And that's just really good methodology. It gives us an answer to a question in a way that we couldn't have seen any other way. And now we can say authoritatively, yes, today's millennials are really different in their values from previous generations. But... Right. When I look at the caliper data for millennials that I've been gathering, I don't see any difference at all. They look exactly like the generations two, three, four generations ago. So when I look at uh, the oldest baby boomers and compare them to Gen Xers and compare them to millennials, I don't see any difference. Dispositionally, personality-wise, remember, personality is more genetic, whereas values are more learned. Right. And so the, learn, the learned qualities are what are changing, but the more dispositional qualities is what we seem to be hiring for. And that's really traced back to what the law schools seem to be accepting in their entry classes. Whatever they're doing, they're accepting the same personalities into law as always, or put another way, the same kinds of personalities are still seeing law as the attractive choice. So maybe it's got to do with pre-law counseling, or maybe it's got to do with the PR that the profession has in the general public. Or, 
you know, a lot of things we could lay it off to, but the bottom line is the people who enter and stick with law school still look the same as today's practicing lawyers. We do know that people who don't look like today's practicing lawyers and do enter law school, like feelers on the Myers-Briggs and people who are low in skepticism, they drop out at a statistically measurable higher rate than other people. And that further concentrates the classic lawyer profile by the time people get out of law school. Is a particular kind of moth that is drawn to this flame. That's right. That's a good metaphor. And there's a lot of institutional pressure to keep it that way. Just let me say, I don't, I don't think somebody's sitting up in their basement plotting to keep lawyers from changing. I just think that these are very tenacious patterns and human beings are change averse to begin with. And lawyers are more change averse than most human beings. So it just stands to reason that you're not going to expect to see change unless somebody actively goes about fomenting it. Well, this gives us a really clear picture and a better understanding of the people that we are working with. But I'm curious as to know, you know, what from your perspective can people do to motivate change management in our profession? You know, the the disposition, the personality doesn't seem to be changing. The landscape certainly is. Is there something that people can start to think about or work toward to be able to uh, adapt to an environment that is certainly shifting under our feet, whether we like it or not. So the most important thing that an individual can do is to, I like to put it this way, to learn to be comfortable with discomfort. In other words, the more you can tolerate the uncomfortable, the more equipped you're going to be to navigate in a world of change. And that's because a world of change requires you to use skills you don't normally use to rely on personality traits that may not be your comfort zone. And the only thing holding us back from doing those things is discomfort. You can think of personality as just a, another word for our comfort zone. If I'm high on cautiousness, it means I'm comfortable having lots of data before I make a decision or, or show my, you know, give my opinion. But sometimes we have to make decisions without a lot of data. And the person who can do that despite their discomfort is equipped for leadership. The person who waits until they have all the data, even if it's actually cutting off a lot of their good options, that's not going to make a good leader because the comfort has, has pulled them too far away from what the situation demands. So discomfort is number one on my list. And that's tied into agility because if you're willing to be uncomfortable, then you're willing to adapt in situations. The comfortable person is the person who finds it hard to adapt. Adaptation always involves discomfort. And adaptation is the secret sauce. It's what allows you to be a different person in your leadership role than you are in your lawyering role. It allows you to be a different person when you have to go into a group to innovate or try to collaborate compared to when you're practicing law. Those shifts in role require different thinking, different mindsets. And if it's not your norm, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if you're willing to tolerate that, you've got yourself an advantage over most of the other people who don't. Do you have any tactical tips on how we can become more comfortable with discomfort? That sounds like a tall order and a bit of a, a paradox for someone who may not be as practiced in it. It does, but I, I think it's not as hard as it sounds, David. What I found is that one of the best tools for increasing that capacity is simply feedback. 
Mm. and a very specific type of feedback. Feedback about yourself, feedback about your strengths, feedback about your weaknesses, feedback about your blind spots in particular. By definition, a blind spot is something that you'll be surprised to hear about. You think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm good at X. And people say, well, actually, you're not. A blind spot is very important to understand. And if you're low in resilience, you generally don't want to hear about blind spots. But people who are tolerant of the discomfort of learning about their blind spots are people who have the potential for enormous growth. And that means that they can grow into these other roles that I'm talking about. So getting feedback, whether it's through 360 feedback, personality assessments, group feedback, where people are candid with each other. There are lots of ways to get that feedback. One of the things I do for law firms, I've for 20 years, I've done upward evaluation systems where associates evaluate partners and other forms of 360, where partners do peer reviews of each other. 360 feedback is one of the most powerful mechanisms for giving feedback ever developed. And yet it it's very, very tricky. It has to be done just right or it can backfire or it can blow up in your face. So it's a very powerful tool and it's one that can be used institutionally. Up until now, what I've been saying are things that could help an individual to increase their capacity. But if you're in a leadership role listening to this podcast, implementing a system-wide multi-rater feedback system, whether it's Upward or 360, peer review, they're all different methods, you know, mechanisms based on multi-rater feedback where many people give anonymous feedback to one individual at a time. Those systems are the, the tool of choice to increase somebody's capacity for growth and adaptability. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing the insights that you've gleaned over the many years of the work that you've done and giving us some suggestions on what we can do with this information to hopefully shed some light on our blind spots personally and in our various organizations. So it's an absolute pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you and thanks for sharing your thoughts with our audience today. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Very, very glad to have had the time to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to the Market Leaders Podcast. For more business development resources, visit ackertinc.com. 